Hi folks, just a quick warning before you start listening to this episode. As much as I would like to claim that I was trying to recreate the feeling of sitting around a campfire, talking, having fun, listening to someone tell spooky stories at nighttime, the actual fact of the matter is there was a cricket somewhere in my room and I could not find it and I could not get rid of it. So you will hear cricket noises in the background through most of this recording, Please try to imagine that you and I are just hanging out in the great outdoors, on the back porch, just having a few laughs and shooting the shit and talking about movies, because in the immortal words of Mike Nelson, pay no attention to crickets in the background or I swear they will drive you batshit insane. My apologies. On with the show. Horror. Hello, and welcome to Half Price Horror, where we get our terror at a discount and pass the savings on to you. Half Price Horror is a spoiler-heavy podcast that takes a look at horror movies curated by the shelves of the local Half Price bookstore, and tonight we'll be taking a look at Killer Clowns from Outer Space, the beloved cult classic from 1988. This movie was directed by Steven Chiodo, although all three of the Chiodo brothers have credits on the film, including production credits. The Chiodo brothers were a family of special effects artists with credits that include Critters, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, and Ernest Scared Stupid. If you've ever seen the large Marge face explodey thing in Pee-wee's Big Adventure, that is a signature effect of theirs. Um, It starred Grant Kramer as Mike. He was mostly known for soaps like Young and the Restless. John Allen Nelson, who played Dave, also did soaps like Santa Barbara. Um, Suzanne Snyder played Debbie. She was in Weird Science, Night of the Creeps, Return of the Living Dead Part 2. She's got a a kind of career as a, a young woman who looks sweet and kind and innocent and is menaced by things. And it stars John Vernon, who is best known for Dean Wormer in Animal House as Officer Curtis Mooney. This is a movie that is very dear to a lot of people's hearts, and it's one of those late 80s movies where you really kind of have the aesthetic of the 1980s pinned down so deeply and thoroughly that it's it's kind of it feels like the 80s and you'll see this a lot in when you talk about decades in film or decades in culture the things that feel most like that cult that decade are sometimes the things that come right at the end sometimes even a year or two into the next decade so when you look at the quintessentially 70s feeling films There'll be films that came out in 1980 or 81. When you look at 90s movies, they're the ones that came out in 98 or 99, that kind of thing. So this is, this is really a point where the aesthetic of horror as it was seen in the 80s has kind of reached its apex. And you'll, if you watch any kind of 80s horror, you will recognize this as, as very much in that wheelhouse. The movie begins with this very classic sci-fi credit sequence Again, we're talking sci-fi horror here. This is going to borrow heavily from the aesthetics of the alien invasion movies from the 50s. Specifically, the inspiration that they mention on the commentary track is The Blob, but because The Blob was so influential on later films, it kind of becomes this ur-text for the whole idea of alien lands in a small town outside uh, in in you know heartland of america type uh, rural americana and and menaces things and you get this this very you know theremin heavy title sequence with, and the fonts on the title sequence all have this very alien invasion 50s movie feel or at least what it what you would expect it to be honestly having watched a lot of 50s alien invasion movies very frequently they'll throw in this sort of modified comic sans font that you got on shows like barney miller it's kind of a strange situation in any event 
as this is going through all of this background of stars and this starring, you know, starring John Allen Nelson, starring John Vernon, starring Suzanne Snyder, the very last credit is in, and then it comes with this big, bright, day-glow, wacky circus font for the logo of Killer Clowns from Outer Space, and all of the theremin music is... Uh, launched into this quirky rock song called Killer Clowns by the Dickies. So this is, you know, once you get the title sequence, you know what you're in for right away. It is something that is going to have the form and structure of a very classic, formalized, stylized alien invasion movie, but the monsters are going to be literally and figuratively absurd. This is this is essentially not just an invasion of Earth, it is an invasion of genre by forces outside of the normal alien invasion movie concept. Now, I'm not saying that the Chiodo brothers were necessarily thinking of this as a deconstruction of genre tropes by introducing an anarchic force from outside of the genre, which would examine and pinpoint the forms of that genre, I think they were thinking, hey, wouldn't it be great if we did the blob, but with monster clowns? But the thing is about art is that it's not always conscious. Sometimes it is very intuitive. Sometimes people understand what they want, even if they can't necessarily put it into words, and they're just putting things down into the page, and something feels very right about them. And in this case, I think what they were, you know, like I say, what they were getting at consciously was, hey, wouldn't it be funny if clown, if we redid the blob, but with monster clowns? But what they were getting at is the idea that the tropes of comedy and the tropes of horror are very similar. They are both building up tension to this big emotional release, whether it's a scream or a laugh, and that in a lot of ways, the difference between comedy and horror is really something as simple as consequences. You know, somebody in the Looney Tunes cartoon gets an anvil dropped on their head and they bounce up and down like a concertina, and it's hilarious. Do the exact same thing, but with the head being crushed, and it's absolutely terrifying. And so these killer clowns, they come into this genre, they come into this structure of terror, and then... They use the forms of humor to inflict that terror. And it, it's something that we'll get into a little bit more as it goes on. But you'll find that it's actually a very bizarre mix of humor and horror. And the humor is very uneasily floating on top of much deeper horrors. So the film's opening is a montage of a very typical Anytown, USA. And again, this is, you know, this is taken straight out of a lot of classic 50s sci-fi horror movies. This is a college town, and you can see as you follow this deputy, Kurt Mooney, who's John Vernon's character, is that there's a lot of college-age kids who are partying and drinking and buying beer and going up to the top of the world, which is the local makeout spot to make out. And Mooney is clearly upset by this. He is a small-minded, viciously authoritarian pig who would not be out of place in Trump's America, let's be honest. But the point is, we're not in any real space here. This isn't a real city. This is a conceptual space of what we think of when we think of movie um, small-town America. There's a burger stand, there's a lover's lane, there's all, there's almost these stock sets, but they're stock sets not in a physical sense, but in the mental sense. They're the places we expect to find in a movie like this. And as we leave Mooney behind, we go up to Lover's Lane, where we see all sorts of cars parked and all sorts of people making out in the back seat. And the action is interrupted by the Terenzi brothers, who are going to be kind of the comic relief of the movie, and they're driving an ice cream truck up to the area in the hopes of, you know, enticing these people to buy ice cream cones for their girlfriends, and they've brought along their own dates, luring them with the promise of free ice cream, and are hoping that maybe once they're done selling the ice cream, they can park with them. And... The Terenzi brothers are extremely broad comic characters. 
really a large part of whether or not you're going to like this movie depends on how you can handle the Terenzi brothers. And I really thought that they were just so over the top and so out there that it was clear that they were just there as, as, like I say, broad stereotypes. But in fact, these are people that the Chiodo brothers actually knew. They wrote them into the story and they were known for stunts like this, getting renting an ice cream truck and selling ice cream in the hopes of getting girls and playing, doing all sorts of wacky stunts and pranks. And it just kind of goes to show that in a lot of ways, this is what they mean by truth is stranger than fiction. It's not that truth is really stranger than fiction. Obviously, fiction contains monster clowns, but you have to explain fiction. You don't have to explain truth. Characters like this can just exist in the real world as people, and everyone goes, well, that's who they are. But in a movie, you kind of have to explain someone who is as broad and and stylized and wild as these particular characters turn out to be. Unsurprisingly, the Terenzi's scheme doesn't work. They're driven off by a hail of abuse and pelted garbage, and our actual protagonists, Mike and Debbie, watch them go. Mike knows the Terenzi's. He has this little token speech about, oh, they're such a wacky pair of guys, and they're so funny and everything. And, uh, you know, he's really... He is kind of a character himself. He is also another person that the Chiodo brothers wrote pretty much directly from life. But he's not as broadly drawn as the Terenzi brothers. And he is, he's, you know, not really interested in talking. He's more interested in quote-unquote stargazing with his girlfriend. But then, just like in dozens of classic sci-fi movies, again, starting with The Blob, they see a meteor come down nearby, and they decide to go investigate. But at that point, we cut to the local country bumpkin stereotype, Gene, who is played by veteran character actor Royal Dano, who is... Uh, this kind of character is also very common in films like this. You will often see the first victim be a local yokel, a hick from the sticks, etc. Not a real character not drawn as a real character drawn as a very broad comic stereotype and they're often seen as the the first character to encounter the alien menace in movies like this because they won't be believed they're considered to be foolish they're considered to be frequently drunk they're old sometimes they're viewed as you know senile and so they they can encounter these things and introduce them to the audience, and then there's no threat of it immediately being taken seriously. And again, this was this particular movie is drawing heavily off the blob for inspiration. This is how the blob pretty much starts, is this exact same character type, again, not the same actor, but the same character, takes these exact same actions, goes and looks for the meteor, but in this movie, instead of a meteor with a blob, they find this giant glowing circus tent out in the middle of the woods. And they go looking around it, but there doesn't appear to be any entrance. But suddenly this hole materializes in the wall, and Annette comes out and scoops up the dog. Now the country bumpkin, Gene, gets mad and he punches the tent, but instead of being, you know, canvas, it's solid metal and he hurts his fist... At that point, he tries to pull down the tent by the, the uh, support wires, and he gets an electric shock. This is clearly not what it seems to be, and his efforts at sabotage are interrupted by a large, grotesque alien that looks like a creepy, distorted caricature of a clown who shoots him with a surreal day-glow parody of a classic Flash Gordon ray gun. And again, the aesthetics of the movie are all entirely just taking the tropes of science fiction and putting them through this Looney Tunes filter of pure nonsensical absurdity. But, crucially, and we won't see this right away with Gene, this will be something that we see later, it's not as though the consequences are erased by the absurdity of the premise. Being killed by a killer clown from outer space is the same as being killed by any other alien monster. So they have sort of taken the tropes of cartoons, that cartoon laws of physics thing that we've all seen on the internet floating around at some point, 
and turned it into horror. But we don't, like I say, we don't immediately see the consequences of being zapped by the ray gun. We instead jump back to the police station where Mooney is clashing with another police officer, Dave, the square-jawed Bruce Boxleitner, incredibly resembling hero. Uh, over his arrest of two young men, the two young men are very queer-coded, and Mooney's harassment of them is very much homophobically coded. Uh, he's arresting them for trivial offenses, and he is handling the suspects roughly, shoving them around, he's giving them little smacks. Unfortunately, he's a very realistic example of ACAB, and he's clearly being set up as a contrast to square-jawed by-the-book Dave, who is straight out of the big book of 50s heroes. Dave stands up for them, makes sure that they're booked properly. It would be nice if there were cops like Dave, but let's face it, Mooney's really kind of the the standard. Um, we jump back to the meteor crash site where Mike and Debbie are doing their investigating and we get an example of Mike's sense of humor, heavy sigh, as he does this impression of an indigenous American tracker. Let me put it this way. If you've ever listened to Welcome to Night Vale, you'll know that in the early episodes they talk about the Indian tracker who is this white guy who talks in this extremely insensitive movie lingo for Native Americans. This may be where they got it from, to be honest, because Mike really just does this terrible, you know, it, it's the... He talks like Tonto from The Lone Ranger. It's It's just awful. Uh, but again, you know, I want to say that maybe in 1988 this wouldn't have been seen as out of the ordinary, which is kind of depressing, and he's clearly being set up not as a racist jerk, but as the sort of mismatched buddy for Dave later on, the, you know, wacky class clown type to contrast with Dave's square-jawed, you know, Joe Friday sensibilities. They also find the circus tent, but this time they do find a door. They they get inside, but instead of, you know, the classic 50s sterile silver interior with the gunmetal gray hatches and the pipes and everything, they find this brightly painted series of corridors with all of these weird swirling designs painted in all sorts of just ludicrous over-the-top colors. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a very expressionist style of set, but the colors don't match that. It's as though if you made an adult coloring book of The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and then gave it to a five-year-old who had just figured out staying inside the lines but colored everything with whatever crayon they thought was coolest, that would be kind of the color scheme of this spaceship and the design scheme of this spaceship. And I don't really know if that helps you, but I just would like to say that I really want an adult uh, coloring book of Cabinet of Dr. Caligari now. They follow the corridor down to the end, and they find elevators. It's, it's clear to them once they go down one of the elevators and find this giant power plant that looks very much like, like something out of Forbidden Planet, that impossibly deep shaft with giant crackling energies blasting around in the air that are clearly a matte painting, but that's okay because A, it's a good matte painting, and B, it's okay because you don't need it to be realistic. It's just intended to convey the idea of what you're looking at. Um, a lot of the, the aesthetic of this spaceship feels like it wound up um, being an inspiration to the folks who did Invader Zim. Um, because again, this is not the kind of spaceship you would expect to find in a movie like this. It looks like kind of a circus. So they, they leave the first room, which is their power plant, and they find a second room with uh, what look like giant bundles of cotton candy. Like human-sized bundles of cotton candy. Hmm, that's not suspicious. Uh, but of course they don't know that right away. They figure it out when Mike pulls loose a handful to snack on, and instead of finding more cotton candy inside the cotton candy, they find it's a thin layer of cotton candy over a human corpse. In this case, it's a human corpse he recognizes from Lover's Lane, a Joe Lombardo. But before they can investigate further, another one of those giant grotesque clown parody creatures comes in and spots them. It pulls out a huge rifle that, again, it's another mockery of a 50s sci-fi weapon. It would not be out of place 
in a, uh, you know, Crash Brannigan or a, a Commando Cody type thing. And uh, when they fire it, instead of firing a laser blast or, a, a, you know, a grenade or something, it fires popcorn. And the story they tell us that this prop wound up being the most expensive prop on the entire movie because they set it up so they actually shot popcorn and then they only use it for this one shot, and they're just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe how stupid we were as filmmakers. Um, the co- the popcorn follows them uh, down and around the corridor and clings to them as it hits them, but they do manage to get away. But the clowns give chase. They take a bunch of circus balloons and tie them together to make a balloon doggy which comes to life and tracks them like a hound. And again, this is a perfect example of what I'm talking about. That would be a great play on, you know, what you would expect for reality if you were doing some sort of a Looney Tunes cartoon. And it's hilarious to watch. But at the same time, that amusement is floating very uneasily over this level of horror, which is at the idea that these are not creatures that have to follow the same physical laws as you and I. These are creatures that follow the laws of cartoon physics. And cartoons, are they're famously indestructible. They can withstand any amount of punishment. They can teleport. They can go anywhere, do anything. They are immune to every kind of gross consequence and structure and rule and law that we rely on. There's a term for that, and that's cosmic horror. I mean, we are now firmly in the realm of Lovecraftian horror, creatures that are so vastly powerful, so utterly beyond our existence and understanding that you kind of start to go a little bit crazy just looking at them. And even the laughter. I mean, how many times do you see someone in a cosmic horror film crack up and just start laughing over and over and over again, unable to stop? There's this really narrow line between them, and Killer Clowns, whether consciously or not, it blurs that line. It's it's one of those things where anytime you think about, actually think about what a cartoon is like, you do get that sense of unnerved, terrified horror. I mean, you know, when you think about the classic Duck Amok cartoon, it's Daffy arguing with his literal creator, and his creator has the power to distort his body, reshape his environment, do whatever he feels like, and Daffy can do nothing back. Daffy doesn't have any ability to affect his creator. Daffy can only be reduced to complaining, pleading, whining about his predicament, and in the end you find out that his creator is doing all of this just to dick with him. It is pure sadism. There is a non-cartoon version of this story, and it's Harlan Ellison's I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream. So you are going to get this level of, oh, that is so clever, you know, whenever you see the various different vignettes of the clowns preying on people, it's very funny, but that funny is not at home. That funny is hanging out with, oh my god, these things are immensely powerful, not subject to the same gross laws of physics we are, and they want us dead. That's a pretty powerful set of tropes. Even if, in this case, the the balloon animal is probably not the most powerful manifestation of that. The balloon animal tracks them down, but they get to their car, and they manage to escape and and get back to town, but you see the clowns slowly walking to follow them. They come back to town, and they get to the police station. Debbie wants to tell the police, but Mike thinks that this is kind of a fruitless endeavor because, again, you know, he's going to walk into this police station and say, hey, eight-foot-tall murder clowns from Planet X have come to slaughter the entire town, and, I mean... You know, this is, again, this is a trope you'll see in a lot of these movies, in The Blob, in Attack of the B.I. Creatures, in a lot of these old sci-fi movies, you'll have, oh, well, the teenagers go to tell the cops about the problem, and the cops don't believe them because they don't believe in aliens. But in this case, it is heightened to this absurd, ludicrous, brilliant extent, because 
you are going to tell them that they're clowns on top of everything. Clowns are, by definition, something that is supposed to be too ludicrous to be threatening. It's brilliant. And I realize I'm saying brilliant a lot, but this is a great movie. Mooney, of course, thinks that this is college kids trying to prank the police, which is a sensible assumption. But Dave, because he knows Debbie, um, you're later going to find that Debbie is his ex, the one that got away as far as he's concerned, is willing to at least go up and take a look. And Mooney is like, yeah, sure, you go make an idiot of yourself. I'm not going to do that. So Dave goes off with the others to investigate just as the clowns are arriving in town. And they begin playing a series of lethal pranks on the citizens that are intercut with the main action. So you're going to get a lot of jumping back and forth. I'm not really going to simulate that. I'll just kind of sum it up. The pranks, they all have a very sadistic intelligence at work. These are... Despite the fact that they never speak directly to people, well, you'll see an instance where they do talk, but not in a conventional sense. But they're clearly intelligent, and they are sadistic, and they are am amusing themselves with their murders. And they have a technology that follows a mix of Clark's Law, the famous any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, and the cartoon Laws of Physics. They're able to defy the laws of space and time. One of them shows up on a doorstep carrying a stack of pizza boxes that's probably two feet high and being held up off the ground, but this eight-foot-tall clown climbs out of it. And they only speak English to the extent that's needed to carry out these jokes. The, again, they don't speak directly to their victims. There is a one point where they impersonate a human voice. There's a point where... They speak using a human as a ventriloquist dummy, but they never actually talk to anyone. The pranks include, there's a scene with a clown carrying out a Punch and Judy style puppet show, and at the end, one of the puppets uh, shoots the other one with a, uh, with a Flash Gordon style ray gun that makes it disappear, and then the clown emerges and shoots the uh, audience with that same gun. There's a bunch of clowns that wander around browsing in a local drugstore and deliberately smash the entire place up. There's a delivery of Valentine's candy that ends with everyone involved being shot by clowns. There's an encounter with a bunch of bikers by this biker clown who bikes up on this cute teeny little bicycle that one of the bikers smashes up. The clown challenges him to a boxing match with little wee boxing gloves on and literally punches the guy's head off. And again, you know, this is the, that cartoon laws of physics applied to non-cartoons. If the biker was also following the same rules, you know, his head would have snapped back like a, like a rubber band and bounced onto his shoulders and we all would have laughed. But instead, it is, oh my god, he has been murdered. Um, it reminds me a lot of the original comic book version of The Mask, not the, the movie, which played very much more on the family-friendly side of things. But in the original version, you do see Stanley murder a lot of people, and I mean a lot because he is hitting them with giant mallets. He is shoving dynamite down their throat. He is, you know, pulling out gigantic hand cannon guns the size of a person. And to another cartoony type character, this is just all in a day's routine, but to a human, this is lethal. You also get uh, a child who's almost lured out of a restaurant by the adorable clown, making little friendly gestures towards her. Her mom stops her right before she leaves, and we see that the clown had a giant mallet behind his back. Again, giant mallets, giant baseball bats, all sorts of murderous implements of destruction for cartoon characters. You see a local driver on his way back from Makeout Point, who gets into a deadly race with a clown, not even on a bike, it's just a clown sitting on thin air with headlights sticking out from his giant clown shoes, but he's driving at highway speeds and runs the guy off of a bridge. And in what is probably my favorite, and the one that's most emblematic of the whole story, 
you have a clown who starts making shadow puppets, and they start out with simple ones, and but they get progressively more and more and more elaborate until they're very clearly just animations drawn on the brick wall behind him. And finally, he makes a shadow Tyrannosaurus Rex that leans down and eats the entire crowd of appreciative people in one gulp. Getting back to the main plot, Dave, on his way to investigate with Mike, drops Debbie off back at her house because, of course, he is a square-jawed hero and he wants to make sure his best gal is safe, even if she's not his best gal anymore. It's, it's very sexist, obviously, but it's sexist in the sense that this movie is in some way looking at tropes from an older era of film, and gender roles were more entrenched in those 50s movies, so... They're more or less satirizing it as well as reenacting re it. It's it's kind of a thin line, but it is there. Of course, it's also one of those things where later it will turn out to be a big mistake that they left her alone. But for now, they're just going off to investigate the meteor sighting. When they get there, it turns out the clowns have relocated their ship. There is no longer a circus tent there. There's just this giant hole in the ground, which isn't really good enough evidence for Dave. You know, I mean, that's like, dude, there's a giant hole in the ground there that, where something clearly was. But on the other hand, there's no clowns and there's no circus tent, and Dave has had a long night. So he puts Mike in cuffs and drags him away because in the end, cops are, do not like being made fools of by people and are violent and capable of using that violence as an instrument of their authority. And again... All cops are bastards. Um, however, as they're heading back, they pass through Lover's Lane, uh, the top of the world, as it's called in the movie, and all of the cars are abandoned. All of them are missing their occupants. There's no couples making out. There's no college kids, quote-unquote, stargazing. When Dave gets out to investigate, he finds that one of the unoccupied Jeeps is full of sticky fibers of cotton candy. Bum, bum, bum. And it convinces Dave, okay, maybe there's something to this story after all. So he apologizes to Mike, he uncuffs him, and the two of them go back to the town for help. Meanwhile, back at the station, Mooney is getting call after call after call about people saying they're attacked by clowns. But the more people tell him about the dangers, the more it hardens his belief that he's the victim of an organized prank to humiliate him, and the more he believes that people are in on this. Now, this is interesting to me because it's a very real psychological phenomenon known as cognitive dissonance, where we try to maintain a state of consistent thought, beliefs, attitudes, decisions, and behavior, even when new information comes to light that would force us to change those beliefs. It's far easier to rationalize away a piece of uh, information that contradicts your existing attitudes than it is to change your thoughts and your behavior. And as the contradictory information builds up, the rationalization that requi is required to maintain the existing belief becomes more and more absurd and may lead to dangerous, irrational behavior. And I mean, obviously, there are parallels with modern life as we know it, and we're in that stage of things, unfortunately, where for some people it becomes easier to believe that pizza parlors are hiding a secret conspiracy cabal of child-molesting sex traffickers than it is to believe that Hillary Clinton might be a decent president if somebody were to elect her. It's hard not to watch the scene and just see something very real in his bitter mistrust of the world around him. Uh, and and it's, it's both a little bit creepy and a little bit sad and very, very interesting. We do cut back to Debbie back at her house, who is, you know, taking a shower and cleaning off all the popcorn from her, um, but that she, as she brushes it off, some of it starts moving around on the floor. And uh, we get another hint that something is wrong with the popcorn when one of the clowns pours a handful of it into a dumpster, and one of the employees of the local burger joint goes to dump the garbage and gets dragged into the dumpster and killed. Dave and Mike, on their way back to town, happen upon the shadow puppetry that I mentioned earlier, just as it's reaching the conclusion where the clown makes the shadow T-Rex and devours all the bystanders with it, and that is pretty much the convincer for Dave. Um, it is also the convincer for Mike, who grabs the wheel and literally tries to turn the car to run the clown down. 
The clown, of course, though, again, following cartoon laws of physics, it just jumps up onto the top of the building and gets away. But the car is luckily still intact, mainly because the production rented all of the cars used in the movie and couldn't afford to wreck them, so it doesn't so much hit the brick wall as it gently nudges the brick wall. Dave uses the radio to get a hold of Mooney and tell him, yep, I've just seen the clowns, they are real. But, the, of course, by this point, Mooney believes anyone who tells him that there is a clown is part of this conspiracy to drive him insane and drive him out of his job. So he's just like, yeah, whatever, I guess you're in on it too, and hangs up. Just then, the Terenzi brothers go by. They have somehow let their truck get away from them and are chasing it down. And Mike and Dave get the bright idea of uh, splitting up. Mike is going to go with the Terenzi brothers to check on Debbie, and Dave is going to go back to the station to try to get a hold of the state police. The brothers catch up with their truck when it hits a stack of cardboard boxes, because again, no damage allowed to the vehicles, and Mike catches up with them and it tells them what's going on. They don't believe him, but they agree to help because Mike tells them, oh yeah, Debbie's got roommates and they're sexy and they love ice cream, and they're like, well great, we're in, again. These characters are just so unbelievable that the biggest shock to me about watching the commentary was finding out they are real people. Before Dave can get back to the station, an actual clown shows up there, and of course Mooney is by this point so far down the cognitive dissonance rabbit hole that he doesn't see the danger. He assumes that this is some townsperson dressed up as a clown to try to make him look foolish. And the clown, again, these, these creatures, they not only seem to be intelligent, but they seem to be intelligent and they're breaking the fourth wall in a lot of ways, which is, again, it's another very cartoonish trope. They know things they shouldn't know. This clown is toying with Mooney. It knows that he is very much the straight man in this gag, and so it hands him squirting flowers and it lets him put the handcuffs on him before he pulls away a fake pair of hands, etc., etc. It's all sorts of very Looney Tunes-style gags, but at the end, when it lets itself be locked in the holding cell with the two guys from earlier, it just pulls out one of those party blowers that unrolls into a gripping hand that grabs Mooney's throat and drags him headfirst into the cell door hard enough to make a cartoon bong noise. If Mooney was also a cartoon character, that would be funny. But Mooney's a human being, and he has clearly just been hit on the head very hard, and it's just... it's... creepy. It's spooky in this uneasy way of I I am laughing at this but I am also aware that it's not funny. Dave gets back to the station and finds that it's apparently empty except that it's got clown-sized footsteps on the floor that leads to the holding cell. When he gets inside he sees that the footprints go up on the wall and walk up onto the ceiling and it's again it's a very Looney Tunes gag but it is combined with the tropes of there's a monster loose in the police station and Dave doesn't know where it is. Uh, the two suspects from the opening sequence are in the cells, dead and cocooned, which is too bad because, again, they were they seemed like nice guys whose only crime was being in the wrong place at the wrong time, and I really do feel sorry for them, but that's kind of the point, is that this is a movie where if you think about what's going on for any length of time, you'll feel very sad and very frightened, but the superficial level is all this day-glow, popcorn, and balloon animals, and wacky pranks. And that comes to a head when Dave goes back out to the main area, and the clown is sitting there waiting for him, with Mooney sitting on his lap, painted to look like a ventriloquist dummy, with the pale face and the bright red spots on the cheek, and the clown, you know, talks without moving its lips, but Mooney is the one that speaks, and it's, you know, I mean, it is John Vernon doing his own voice, and he does this wacky sub-vaudeville routine that ends with him saying, don't worry, Dave, all we want to do is kill you. Now, there is a whole series of horrifying implications to the sequence. It's not like any of the clowns have talked to Dave. They don't have any reason to know his name. And certainly if all they wanted to do was come into town and cocoon everyone up and then scoop up their cocoons and take them back to their spaceship to eat them, which is one of the things that they do, they could do it without any real effort, given how powerful they are. 
all of these elaborate theatrical methods of murder are clearly intended for their own amusement. And given that they defy the laws of physics, there is this, like I say, there's this Lovecraftian terror lurking beneath all of this Daglo cutesy fun jokes. Only it's even worse than Lovecraftian in a lot of ways, because at least Cthulhu just doesn't care about humanity. He's cosmically indifferent to humanity. He's so powerful that he accidentally crushes us. But these are things that have all the power of something cosmically horrifying. And they want to kill us. And they want to kill us in ways that make us suffer. That is brought home with this scene, especially when the clown pulls its hand out of Mooney's back and you realize it had literally just punched into his chest and was manipulating his spine to make him talk, and his hand is still soaked in blood. He advances on Dave, Dave shoots and shoots and shoots, but, you know, the bullets, it's a cartoon creature, the bullets don't do anything. But of course, this is ultimately a 50s movie, and the 50s sci-fi tropes reassert itself when Dave gets a lucky shot that hits it right in the middle of its big red nose, and it instantly explodes spins around and explodes in a shower of green glitter because 50s monsters always have a fatal weakness that is discovered by the heroes that they can use to destroy it in the third act. And try as they might to assert this cartoon reality, the clowns are in a 50s alien invasion movie and there are some rules they gotta play by. Once he dispatches the clowns, Dave gets on the horn to the state police and lets them know that, yes, in fact, there are murderous clowns in our town and they are from outer space. And it sounds absurd, of course, but he is able to say, hey, look, there's an officer dead right in front of me that one of these things killed, and that's enough to make anybody take the situation seriously. Meanwhile, on their way to find Debbie, the Trenzi brothers are finally convinced of the reality of all this when they turn a corner on the way back to Debbie's house and find a section of the neighborhood that the clowns have already uh, cleared out of, uh, by turning everybody in it into cotton candy cocoons. And they're scooping them up in this giant truck with a big bright blue bag that and this giant hose leading to a vacuum cleaner type scoop and the whole thing looks like something out of Dr. Seuss. If you put this into a, the concept art into a Dr. Seuss book you would not find it a bit out of place. And again it's it's wonderful juxtaposition of the aesthetics of the film which are day glow and pop art and gloriously gleefully silly and then this very very serious deadly threat. Speaking of deadly threats, back at her house, Debbie gets out of the shower and gets dressed and finds out that her hamper and medicine cabinet are infested with serpentine proto-clown embryos that have hatched out of the popcorn. She gets away from them, they are after all only baby clowns, and she hears Mike at the door, but of course when she opens the door it's not Mike, it's a clown impersonating Mike. And again, there's no way they should even know that she's dating Mike, let alone expecting him. This isn't even advanced technology, this is, this is telepathy, this is almost just supernatural powers, and they're all devoted into the service of these absurdly theatrical methods of killing people. Again, it's, it's terrifying, but it's also resting uneasily with this sense of anarchic fun. It's brilliant, it's, it's chaos at its finest. Debbie slams the door shut on the clown, like you do, and runs to the window, but there's a group of clowns waiting below with a trampoline, so she's not getting out that way. The clown bursts in, it imprisons her by shooting her with a beam that imprisons her in a giant inflatable balloon, and they tether it to the back of their clown car, because of course they have a clown car and drive off just as Mike arrives. There is a chase that follows. This is the only movie that is going to have alien clowns in a clown car being chased by an ice cream truck, but Dave inadvertently interferes and causes an accident, which of course does not damage either car in the slightest, and that allows the clowns to escape. But everyone working together figures out where the clowns must have gone there's a nearby amusement park, and sure enough, the clowns have parked their spaceship there where it blends in perfectly with the nearby attractions. The clowns show up at the amusement park, and of course they climb out of the tiny clown car in a huge group, because 
how can you have a movie like this and not have a scene where a ton of clowns climb out of this little tiny car? And they kill the Night Watchman with an onslaught of acidic cream pies. And again, this is this is just a brilliant piece of comedy which then becomes horror. It is hilarious that they throw all throw cream pies at him. It's hilarious that the number of pies that they materialize out of nowhere and throw at him just become more and more and more until there's just this giant pile of cream completely obscuring his body. It's hilarious when they put a giant cherry on top of the giant pile of cream before they go past with with Debbie in the balloon form and take her to their ship. It is horrifying when the Terenzis accidentally brush the pile of cream and it topples over to reveal that there's a skeleton inside because the Night Watchman has been dissolved. This is such a great movie at juxtaposing the humor and the horror in ways that make the horror absurd and make the humor terrifying. Mike, Dave, and Terenzi brothers follow and they go through this bizarre funhouse that connects into the alien ship. Along the way we get this wonderful subversion of the usual Von Daniken bullshit that happens in these kinds of movies when they're like, maybe our human myths of clowns and jesters are inspired by visits from these aliens before. You can probably guess I'm not a big fan of Von Daniken and the Chariots of the Gods things, you know, as many people have pointed out, it always seems to be the cultures of non-white people that must have been helped by aliens to do all of the cool shit. So this is this is one of my favorite gags. The Terenzi brothers are separated from the group and wind up in the company of a pair of flirtatious female clowns, which they assume are Debbie's roommates, because again, they're they're broad comedy idiot characters. They're the comic relief in a movie that really doesn't need comic relief, to be honest, but I, I'll admit, I just kind of tune them out because you can, they're not a big enough part of the film to really wreck it, I think. Dave and Mike find themselves back in a part of the ship that Mike recognizes. It's the part with the elevators, and they head to the cotton candy room to see if they can rescue Debbie. And at this point, the cotton candy room is full wall to ceiling with racks and rows of cocoons. And the heroes kind of realize that they're the last living human beings in the entire town. A clown enters and they're forced to hide, and they do see that, in fact, yes, the clowns do eat their victims. Uh, it takes out this giant crazy straw. And again, this feels very performative, very theatrical. You know, they, they could just drink these things if they are being liquefied by the cotton candy cocoons. They could drink the bodies much more easily than with a giant crazy straw but it wants to show off. In some ways, it feels like it knows that they're there, but because they're hiding, it has to follow the cartoon laws of physics and not show off that knowledge, but it is going to do something horrifying in the hopes of drawing them out. But they don't. The clown leaves, and they do find Debbie and shoot open her balloon, so she's with them and escapes. However, the trio are discovered as they're trying to leave and they get chased through the whole ship that, you know, there's all sorts of wacky business that goes on with doors that lead to smaller doors that lead to smaller doors and so forth. And they finally show up at last in this massive chamber full of clowns that chase them up onto the top of this giant pedestal that looks vaguely like a bunch of presents being stacked on top of one another. Then the Terenzi brothers crash into the room with their ice cream truck, creating a momentary distraction, because again, the Terenzi brothers are kind of, I've talked a bit about liminal spaces. The Terenzi brothers occupy a liminal space between live action and cartoon. They're such broad characters. They're such characters that they are allowed to kind of borrow a little bit of the clown's cartoonishness for their own ends. And so they can burst in on a giant ice cream truck and, you know, announce that they are the clown god, and the clowns have to be distracted by this by their very nature. The Terenzi brothers are playing on their level. Until, that is, a giant 20-foot cl tall clown, which was called affectionately by the production team Clownzilla, descends from the ceiling like a marionette, breaks free of its strings like, you know, Pinocchio, and then 
grabs the truck and throws it like a toy, causing it to explode and apparently killing the Terenzis. Dave tells the others to run for it through the hole made by the truck. He is going to sacrifice himself in heroic style to hold Clonzilla off. It grabs him, raises him up to his uh, its mouth, but Dave, at the last minute, pulls his police badge off and stabs it in the nose with the little pin, which, of course, because it is a clown, causes it to explode. Outside, Mike and Debbie see the ship taking off and the state police showing up just in time to see it hovering into the sky, looking very much like a giant top once it's got free of the hole. It's got kind of almost this drill effect. Um, but then it explodes along with the ship when Clownzilla does. Dave has given his life, but the Earth is saved. But that ending, as it turned out, focus grouped poorly, so when the clown car falls out of the sky, it's got an intact Dave and two intact Terenzi brothers inside. And of course, the Terenzi brothers survive because they borrow from, again, they occupy that liminal space between cartoonishness and real-world reality. They were able to hide inside the freezer of the ice cream truck in order to avoid the fire. That doesn't make any kind of real-world sense, but they're just cartoonish enough that they can get away with it. So they were intended to survive all along, but they, uh, the audiences did not like an ending where Dave died, and I don't blame them. It's a movie that calls for a happy ending, uh, you know, in the midst of the weird, surreal horror of it all. Dave survives, and the Terenzi brothers, again, hide inside the fridge to survive, which I assume is stolen later on by George Lucas and Steven Spielberg for the Indiana Jones movies. Um, everyone is fine, although as Mike, Debbie, and Dave look up to the skies in vigilance, you can almost hear the narrator about to say, keep watching the skies, like an invasion of the saucer people, and then they all get a cream pie in the face, which is the perfect gag to close out this genre mashup. At the end of the day, there is a lot to love about this movie. A lot. The acting is sometimes stilted. The special effects are, you know, they're a little bit low budget, but it's filled with this ferociously anarchic inventiveness that bounces off the genre conventions of the alien invasion stock plot. Every sequence with the clowns is different. Every way they kill their victims is its own little mini-movie, uh, about a two-minute long short sequence. And they're all surprising, but at the same time they feel like the consistent product of a single aesthetic and a single worldview. It's a remarkably well thought out and entertaining parody, and I'll be honest, I'm keeping this DVD. I got a good one, too. It's the 2004 one with all the special features and the director's commentary, and I'm pretty darn glad I found this one. And uh, that about wraps it up for Killer Clowns from Outer Space, and next time we are going to return to the small town of Derry, Maine to meet the Losers Club as adults and view their final battle with the force of evil known only as it. See you then.